How should nine unelected Supreme Court justices with lifetime appointments decide cases? Should justices be only allowed to look at the text of the Constitution and what framers thought about things back in 1787? Or should justices decide cases based on their own values, their political preferences, or, or their life experiences? And welcome to May It Displease the Court, a show about all the ways our legal system doesn't work for us. I'm an attorney and your host, Mary Whiteside. To quote today's guest, Originalism is simply a rhetorical device used by conservatives to hide modern-day conservative value judgments. Returning to join me now to talk about this is one of our most popular guests, Professor Eric Siegel. He joined us a few episodes back to talk about the taboo topic of judicial law clerks. And I knew that we needed to have him back to tackle the topic of originalism, which is a theory of judicial review. Now, you may recall that he is the author of Supreme Myths, which is also the name of his fascinating podcast. And I urge you to check it out for some really interesting conversations with originalist scholars. There's quite a lot there to dig into. He is the Ash Family Chair Professor of Law at Georgia State University, teaching constitutional law and federal courts. Hi, Professor. Thank you so much for coming back on to talk about your book, Originalism is Faith. Thanks, Mary. I'm very happy to be here. This is a very important topic these days. It really is. And, you know, that your book was only four years ago, but so much has changed. Um, I'm sure you have a lot of thoughts on that. Now, for our listeners, originalism, it purports to be the only correct way to interpret constitutional text. At least that's what originalist uh, proponents say. And it's concerned with understanding the original public meaning of constitutional text. And this type of interpretation, supposedly, is supposed to stop judges from imposing their own values on the nation. And, you know, lawyers and judges who claim to be that, they criticize other justices for um, putting in their own values. And they say that's not proper. So in your book, you say that originalism is a method of constitutional interpretation, and it's nothing more than a misleading label for conservative results, an article of faith, per se, for many legal scholars and the public at large. Why do you say that? The entire enterprise of originalism today is misguided. Now, it wasn't always that way, Merit. So to answer your question, I have to kind of go back in time a little bit. Mm -hmm. The movement for originalism began as a response to what many people perceive to be the excesses of the Warren Court. The Supreme Court has been progressive for about 15 years in our, in our entire history. And those 15 years are the Warren Court and then the early Burger Court. And conservatives and people on the right said that cases like Roe versus Wade, which found a constitutional right to abortion, a bunch of academics uh, and politicians began this movement that said, if a plaintiff comes into court, arguing that a law or a decision made by another government official uh, is unconstitutional, they have a strong burden of proof to show that the law at issue or the decision at issue violated what they called the original intent of the Constitution. But the key point right. was not really about originalism as much as judicial excess. 
and they wanted to say that judges should not strike down laws absent a, a, a clear inconsistency with either text or the history behind the text. I have to say that I agree with that approach to constitutional law because I don't think life-tenured unelected judges sitting in Washington, D.C. should impose their values on the rest of the country. Mm-hmm. What changed was when the Republicans started to control the judiciary, they no longer cared about what we call judicial restraint or what I call judicial deference to other decision makers. Now they controlled the courts. So they wanted to do a whole lot of stuff, but they wanted to keep the label originalism because it worked with the public. It worked on Fox News. So what they needed was a theory of originalism that could justify judges doing a lot for conservatives, for the Republicans um, and for the right side of the American political spectrum. So they dropped the deference part. And that's the crucial thing to understand. Affirmative action, which the court is likely to end this June, um, going back to 1868 to figure out whether affirmative action, let's just say, is applied to blacks, is constitutional, is impossible because the people who wrote and ratified the Constitution in 1868 had no idea that we were going to have a century of segregation. That's not what they thought. That's not what they expected. That's not what they knew about. Mm-hmm. Today, even the most hardcore originalists say that judges are allowed to change the application of old rules when times change. So almost everybody today agrees that women deserve equality under the law because of the 14th Amendment. That was not the case in 1868. Uh, In fact, it wasn't the case in the 1940s in America. Uh, Shortly after the 14th Amendment was passed, Illinois said women couldn't be lawyers, and the Supreme Court upheld that. So that's fine. In the 1940s, not that long before I was born, Michigan said women couldn't be bartenders. That was really a way to help male bartenders. But anyway, that's what they said. And the court upheld that. Mm -hmm. We know what they meant by the 14th Amendment. And what they meant was women were unequal under the law. But then the originalists come in and say, wait a minute. They were wrong about the facts. Women can be good lawyers. So the court was operating under a, a mistaken view of women's abilities back in the 1880s. And therefore, we can reach a different decision today based on the same provision because facts have changed. That's what originalists say. That's exactly what living constitutionalists say. Right. There's no difference. That's what we do, too. We don't pretend to make up new rules. We apply old rules to new facts. Well, if that's originalism, everything is originalism and nothing is originalism. And we're back to my initial point, which is that originalism is simply a misleading label for judges to use, both liberal and conservative judges, to impose their modern day value judgments on the American people, to avoid the responsibility of imposing those value judgments. They blame it on people who lived centuries ago. But of course, those people had no idea how to apply First Amendment to the Internet or even how to ascertain equality when it comes to women, LGBTQ issues, how to deal with drone strikes, which raises all kinds of different issues than they could possibly have anticipated. I've recently been writing blog posts with titles like Originalism is Dangerous Nonsense, because it is, 
because it's not what decides cases. But, I mean, is it is it even dangerous nonsense? I mean, to me, it seems like it's a smokescreen for a larger, a much more devious ploy to reshape our politics and our judicial system, that it's, you know, essentially a PR campaign to hide motivations. And for some people, perhaps they have a, a you know, a genuine ideological bent towards originalism. But given what we know about the Koch funding and the Federalist Society and their designs, their stealth designs to reshape the judiciary and reshape American political life, it seems like to me that this is just one, this is the judicial branch of that. And that, you know, people who adhere to that are either are either willing dupes or unwilling dupes. Leaving aside the dupes for a second, I think what you said is exactly right. I was a panelist at the National Federalist Society Convention this year on affirmative action. The court heard two cases earlier this this year and last year, and they were decided the case in June. And I made originalist arguments as to why this is in front of like 300 members of the Federalist Society uh, on a panel with a Trump judge moderating Judge Kevin Newsom of the 11th Circuit, a Trump judge and two other conservatives. And I made the originalist argument that there were affirmative action programs in 1868. So how can they be unconstitutional today if you if you believe in originalism? And what was fascinating to me, Mary, and I think to everybody who's, who has watched it, not the people in the room because they had their blinders on, but what was fascinating was their response to me was mostly policy, not history. Their response to me was all the harm that originalism does in terms of you know, creating possibly possible backlash in terms of stigma on, on people of color, legitimate policy arguments, but not constitutional arguments relating to text and uh, history, which is because there are no persuasive historical arguments against affirmative action. That is a microcosm of everything you just said. When history supports the views of the conservative justices, they will resort to history. When history does not support their substantive modern day personal value preferences, they will drop history like a hot potato. In the two big religion cases decided last term in June, June, huge cases involving Maine's efforts to fund its non-religious public schools and a a praying coach who the school district didn't want to pray at the 50-yard line right after a game. In both of those cases, the court... uh, didn't rely on history at all to reach very conservative results. They didn't mention it effectively because because it didn't support their views. So you're right that originalism is simply a rhetorical device used by conservatives to hide modern day conservative value judgments. Right, and they're they're banking on uh, you know the people who support them. Just as long as they go out and purport themselves to be originalist and, and scream it when they choose to, that they're not going to pay attention to the rest of the, you know, when, when, they, when they discard it. Right. And to me, the, the liberal justices, when they use originalism, it tends to be, see, if you use originalism, which you say is the only way to do it, you would come to the opposite conclusion, which is always ignored. You know, this, our conversation is timely in the, for a lot of reasons, but for personal reasons. It's very timely. Uh, Just yesterday, two law professors, one at the University of Chicago, one at Harvard, and the one at Harvard holds the Antonin Scalia chair, um, which by the way, there shouldn't be one of those. But anyway, 
um, they wrote a piece in the Harvard Law Review uh, attacking somebody who was attacking originalism. And these are two of our youngest, most, um, you know, they're Harvard and Chicago, uh, most famous law professors talking about originalism. And their position, I'm not making this up, Mary, their position is that cases like Brown versus Board of Education, where the court held that segregated schools were unconstitutional, even though when the 14th Amendment was ratified, everybody thought segregated schools were constitutional. And the Obergefell case, you know, requiring states to recognize same-sex marriages. These two men, Harvard and Chicago, claim that those two cases are originalist. And this is their reasoning, or might be originalist, because they say it may well be that the founders, of, that the writers and ratifiers of the 14th Amendment no state shall deny any person the equal protection of the law or deny any citizen the privileges and immunities of the United States. They might have intended that provision to be very informal, abstract, and let judges update it over time. And I agree with that. That is what the people who wrote that provision thought, that the words were so imprecise, that our country changes so quickly, that, of course, judges have to be able to update the rules over time. Well, these two men who claim to be originalists and who claim that originalism is our law already in about 50 articles, they claim that's originalism. Mary, that's insane. That's insane. <laughs> that's saying originalism means we have to use living constitutionalism. Right. <laughs> which I agree with, which is why we're all living constitutionalists and none of us are true originalists. Smart people who write down imprecise language like equal protection, due process, no unreasonable searches and seizures, no cruel and unusual punishments, no abridgments of freedom of speech, can't deny free exercise of religion, etc. Smart people who write down those imprecise words and aspirations know that judges will have to change the application of those rules over time to fit modern circumstances. The people in 1791 knew that. The people in 1868 knew that. Everybody knows that. And that's living constitutionalism. It's not originalism, but the far right, the Federalist Society, Justices Kavanaugh and Gorsuch and Thomas and Barrett, all want to say that that's originalism because it resonates. But it's not. Yeah. Well, I think... My question to you is, is it a responsibility when you're looking at different scholars to do not not only to engage with the the academic argument that they're putting forward, but also look at, you know, potential motivations and outside influences behind their work? And, you know, we know that the, the Charles Koch Foundation and the Charles Koch Institute, they gave $89.7 million to academic centers, colleges, universities. And then that, or that was 2020. And then that was $100 million they doled out for higher education in 2019. The executive director, Ryan Stowers, in 2015, he said, you know, he, he bragged that the Koch-funded academic network had nearly 5,000 scholars. So Koch has no problem manipulating scholarship. A lot of his grants are tied to the type of research that's produced and people who don't do that being replaced by loyal operatives. So isn't it now imperative that we also question some motivations? Because if we just engage 
in, as if everyone's operating in good faith, isn't that ignoring the fact that there is this extremely well-funded entity right. pushing forward scholarship to engage as if it's in good faith? I, you know, I'm well, just curious of your thoughts on that. Right. Well, there's, a, there's a lot in what you just said. Uh, first of all, Justices Scalia and Thomas both went to Koch Brothers retreats in the mid-2000s. Right. And when I say retreats, I don't mean they went and gave a speech about, you know, this or that to the people. These were political events. And we don't even know what, what, what the two justices did there. They've never, no one's ever been open about that. It's secret. They, it's secret. And they stopped going after it became public that they went. So there's no question a lot of what you said is correct. It just doesn't apply to law professors because law professors don't use grants. Okay. But okay. So Randy Barnett, right? You, you talk about Randy Barnett and I did a little bit of digging. I mean, I'm not a, I'm not a a journalist, you know, so I I just did a little Googling essentially. And according to the Center for Media and Democracy, which is a watchdog agency that does, you know, in-depth investigations into corruption that undermining our democracy and looking at dark money, that when he was a professor of law at the Illinois Institute of Technology back in the 80s, right? He worked for the tobacco industry and he was briefly a member of a group that was essentially, it's been named like the Cash for Comments Economist Network. And this was run by a tobacco institute and a a professor, Tollinson, and and a lobbyist, James Savarese. They got together and this was all, you know, located, their institute was located on the on the grounds of George Mason University, again, heavily funded by, by Koch's George Mason. And they would pay for op-eds and, you know, pro-tobacco scholarship coming out. You know, Barnett was doing that in the 80s and he was de- he was in the same network. So it, it just seems curious to me. Well, I... So, Mary, I, I, I know Randy very well. Right. We, I know Randy very well. Um, and, and, and he was gracious enough to – both of my books have been the subject of his uh, – he has a seminar on new Supreme Court books. And he – both of my books, you know, I went and talked to his class about them. Um, I can't speak to Randy in the 1980s. There are – what I can speak to is this. There's no question that you're right about what the Koch brothers – it's now the Koch brother, right? One's dead. Oh, right. Yeah, right. Right. Once once dead. Want, want to accomplish, which is an extremely libertarian vision for America. And they want to accomplish. He wants to accomplish it without being honest with the American public, because the American public is not really interested in having their you know social supports pulled out from under them. What I want to say is whatever Randy was and Randy today, at, well, as of last year anyway, but I think still today, Randy's at Georgetown. He, he, he only is there half the year now for various reasons. But but the, but these kind of dark money figures you are pointing to um, have funded a, a, basically an originalism workshop that Randy runs for young people who are becoming law clerks. This is a huge problem. Uh, now, Randy does invite a couple non-originalists every year, but the you know 90% of the people there are originalists. Um, and you're right. That's being funded by dark money. We don't know who funds that center. The same thing is true at the University of San Diego. Right. But, but, but Mary, I, I want to say that, the, that 99% of law professors who write in this area are not funded. Both, both sides are not funded by any particular group. That's not how law professors work. Um, and, and that's not the problem, as I see it. 
can I explain the problem? Is I, I mean, that is a problem. Don't get me wrong. Sure. I mean, I, I'm not I'm not 100% convinced, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on what the problem is, because I think it's an area where if you kind of expose their, their they're like, oh, they're working for this. It's another way to just uh, combat what they're saying. Right. Well, so I have been very public about, um, you know, uh, the Randy Center and the San Diego um, Center and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But. The reason, so so, I'm certain that the, the two men I mentioned to you earlier, Will Bode and Steve Sachs, Chicago and Harvard, th- their scholarship is not funded or paid for by anybody. I'm sure they'd be happy if it was, but it's not. Um, and 99% of law professor scholarship is not funded by anybody. I see the problem very differently. So I am what they call a legal realist. And this transcends originalism debate. It's just in general. Uh, a legal realist generally believes that in the open spaces of law where the Supreme Court operates and where many appellate judges operate, eventually, at the bottom line, um, they will impose their own personal values uh, through their decisions. Now, lower court judges can be good lieutenants and will follow what the Supreme Court does. But if they have discretion, the Supreme Court hasn't, you know, hasn't decided a similar issue yet, then both lower court appellate judges and the Supreme Court will decide cases based on their values writ large. That's not always their partisanship. In other words, partisanship, whether you're Democrat or Republican, is a subset of one's values writ large. But it's not about law. It's not about text, history, prior cases. And the Supreme Court, of course, is not bound by their prior cases, and they change them all the time. I just wrote a blog post this week. I've been teaching 32 years. I started being a law professor the very same year that Justice Thomas became a justice. He is the longest serving justice on the court. And Almost every area of constitutional law you and I care about has been changed since the time I became a law professor. Mm-hmm. Abortion, campaign finance reform, affirmative action is going to change dramatically this year. Guns, um, criminal procedure, everything has changed dramatically because, not because there's new text or new history, because the values of the people on the court changed. That's the legal realist critique. And here's the connection to originalism. It is my view that the very smart and intelligent elite law students, then Supreme Court law clerks, then law professors, like Will Bode and Steve Sachs, both of whom clerk for Justice Roberts, they can't accept that critique. They will not and cannot accept that basically the Supreme Court just imposes its values on the American people as it wants to, regardless of prior law. So because they can't accept that in good faith, they are trying to come up with a different theory that suggests something different is going on, and they fail miserably. You can't have constitutional law without more morality and values. Erwin Chemerinsky, the dean of Berkeley Law School and one of the most famous law professors in the country, wrote as long ago as 1989 that constitutional law has always been and will always be the aggregate of the personal preferences of the justices. He was right in 1989. That was written in the Harvard Law Review. He says the same thing today. He's a good friend of mine. He's right. I'm right. That's how judges decide cases. They can't deal with it. Well, That's a different motivation. Okay. Than but Randy. There was. A, oh, sorry. Let, let, let me, yeah, I will let you finish. Randy is a committed libertarian and has been for a long time. That is his overall value preference. So he is going to suggest results and rules and doctrines 
that lead him to libertarianism, um, pretty much. But I think he is an exception to the rule. The, 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 the reality is that people invested in their jobs as law professors or people invested in their jobs as constitutional litigators want to pretend that law matters to the Supreme Court. So liberals do the same thing in different ways, um, but it does, law doesn't matter to the Supreme Court. It never has. Um, and if you had life tenure and you were on the Supreme Court, Mary, it wouldn't matter to you either. And it wouldn't matter, it wouldn't matter to me. Yeah, I the think that's true. Yeah, the institution is fundamentally wrong. Um, there has never been a judicial institution in world history like ours, ever. We have a centuries-old document, impossible to amend or virtually impossible to amend. It takes two-thirds, you know, supermajorities of both Congress and the people. So it's an old document. It's impossible to amend. And it's full of vague phrases like due process and equal protection. And we've had strong judicial review since 1857 when the court said Congress could not end slavery in the territories, even though Article 4 gives Congress the right to run the territories as Congress sees fit. So what's really happening on an intellectual level is well-meaning law professors can't abide that it's all just what the justices had for breakfast. So they make up different things. But That's think, not true. Go ahead. I think, you know, I'm, I'm going to just keep pushing a little bit here. Sure. Knowing what Randy Barnett is, you know, preeminent libertarian scholar, I find it hard to believe that he's unaware of these libertarian actors like the Koch brothers and what they're up to. And, and Scalia certainly wasn't because he was right there at the beginning of, you know, the founding of the Federalist Society. Leonard Leo is absolutely not unaware of this. They are they are players in this. Professor Henry Maine, he created these two-week summer seminars to train faculty from schools, to send them back to schools, you know, train like-minded faculty. There has been a push for training people to be pro-corporate and, to, you know, to be friendly to, you know, to all these really rich right-wing donors. And it's been, they've been extremely successful. They've been bringing in law professors, federal judges, you know, giving them these luxurious accommodations. By 1990, 40% of federal judges had gone to one of these Coke-backed curriculum two-week seminars. So whether they, as lawyers, as, as legal academics, if they don't know what's going on behind the scenes, everyone should be smart enough to look at that and say, you know, are we being manipulated? Because I think you're right. They don't want to be honest about what is a, what's what's the benefit of originalism? Well, it looks at this slice of history, this period of time where women are subjugated, where, you know, people of color are subjugated and, you know, where corporations have enormous control. And it picks that slice of history and says, well, this is what everything should be based on. We could have picked any slice of history. We could have we could have imagined something much more egalitarian, but they didn't. And they're not being honest about who they want to have power and who they don't want to have power. And that's what originalism allows them to do. It allows them to have this kind of esoteric conversation when really the true conversation is, you know, I don't think, uh, you know, women are equal and should get a say in politics and et cetera, et cetera. Mary, your story is incomplete. Okay. And I apologize. There's a, there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of truth in what you say, but it's incomplete. So, so for example, the co-founder of the Federalist Society, Stephen Calabresi, li literally, 
the co-founder, the co-founder, along with Ed Meese, um, took the position in 2000, I'm going to say 16, don't kill me if that year is wrong, whenever Obergefell was decided, mm-hmm. uh, the case that, that required states to recognize same-sex marriages, the co-founder of the Federalist Society very publicly took the position that, and it's an insane position, but I just want to get it out there, that originalism requires the states to recognize same-sex marriage. I know that's hard to believe, but he did. Um, many originalists take that position for reasons that are not originalist reasons. They say they're originalist reasons, but they're not. That gets into the weeds too much. Um, Randy Barnett and a guy named Evan Burnick, who teaches at Northern Illinois, uh, just wrote a book on the original meaning of the 14th Amendment. Now, throughout Randy's career, he's always been a big states' rights person. Always, right? That's one of his values. And that's because he, has, he doesn't like federal regulation. He's a libertarian. He doesn't want Congress, you know, putting all these onerous restrictions on businesses and stuff. In this book, they come up with several very progressive results based on their, exam- their own examination of the 14th Amendment's history. For example, the best example of that is what Congress is allowed to do under its powers under Section 5 of the 14th Amendment um, has been very limited by the Supreme Court. And what Congress normally tries to do is very liberal. And the court has said, no, Congress can't do that. Randy and Evans say that's all wrong, that Congress's powers as an original matter under Section 5 of the 14th Amendment are very broad, much broader than than, than Scalia, Thomas, and even Justice Kennedy thought they were. And that if Congress wants to remedy civil what they perceive as civil rights violations, we should give Congress very broad authority to do that because that's the original meaning of the Section 5 of the 14th Amendment. They are right about that. That is a progressive liberal result. And yet they articulated it anyway, because I truly believe in my heart that they were both trying in good faith to discover the original meaning of the 14th Amendment. So it is more complicated than you are suggesting. There are also originalists, Mike Ramsey at the University of San Diego, who runs the originalism blog, which has been um, very receptive to my anti-originalist writings over the years because they like having good debates. Um, You know, Mike Ramsey called out Scalia and Thomas many, many times for never talking about originalism in their affirmative action decisions, which they never have, uh, never did, Um, because, you know, he thought that was wrong, that if you're you're going to strike down affirmative action, you have to have an originalist reason for doing so, and they never articulated one. So in the academic arena, and I think even among many judges, this topic is more complicated than simply the Koch brothers wanting a libertarian society. Now, I agree with you when it comes to Fox News, when it comes to um, conservative pundits, like who's that awful guy, um, Mark, uh, what's his name? Um, he's a very famous pun, Mark, Mark Levine, or Levin, whatever the hell his name is. Um, you know, everything I'm saying, I'm talking about law professors, I'm not talking about you know, the media, which is a whole different situation. The problem with Randy, the problem with Calabresi, the problem with academic originalists is that their vision of originalism is so, is so broad that it fits into any category. So in fact, the blog post that's coming out tomorrow on Dorf on Law, where I write, is basically says to save originalism, they had to kill it. And yeah. that's what's happened. 
that today's originalists use the word. It's like calling chocolate ice cream vanilla ice cream. <laughs> they're using the word originalism to refer to themselves, but they're not really doing originalism. That's a political move. And I'm not the first person to call that out by any stretch of the imagination. Um, and that's what's really happening. Now, no one cares what academics say. Sure. Really, Mary. I mean, I, you know, Randy and I, right, you know, but really in the real world, no one cares. The important thing is what Justice Thomas says, or what Justice Barrett says, or what Justice Ginn, you know, what, what Justice Sotomayor says, or whatever. And that's where the real problem is. I mean, that brings me to, I wanted to talk about, uh, you know, a couple cases uh, recently since your book has been published. I wanted to talk about um, the Bruin case, which uh, was a New York law that required um, applicants for an unrestricted license to carry a concealed pistol on their person. They had to show special needs. And Justice Thomas, he wrote for the majority, and he ruled that the New York law was unconstitutional and that the rule and he ruled that the ability to carry a pistol in public was a constitutional right under the Second Amendment. And he instructed courts to undertake a comprehensive review of history to determine if the Second Amendment restrictions are consistent with the nation's historical tradition of firearm regulation. And he said that they made it clear that judges can't take in policy concerns into consideration when reviewing the constitutionality of gun legislation. My question to you is, how does this decision represent your concerns about originalism? So I am doing like four conferences in the next two months where my position is going to be very clear. Bruin is, this is going to sound crazy to your audience, but give me a chance. Bruin is the most anti-originalist opinion in American history, written by six people, four of whom are self-avowed originalists, and Justice Alito says he's an originalist sometimes. Roberts does not claim to be an originalist. It's the most anti-originalist opinion in history, and here's why. You described it exactly right. We're going only looking at history and see if similar laws were passed back in 1791 or maybe 1868, and we're not going to weigh the interests, the safety interests of the law against the strength of the right asserted to own a gun. Well, that mode of decision-making would have been, would have struck the founding fathers and the people who ratified the Reconstruction Amendments as quite literally insane. The founding fathers' views on rights were completely different than our views on rights today. There's a lot of reasons for that, but the one relevant mm -hmm. conversation is all rights, with the possible exception of the right to jury, all rights could be defeated if the public interest was strong enough. That was a view that was held by everybody, everybody who lived in 1789 and 1868, that a judge's job in these kinds of cases is to look at the strength of the right. How important is the right to own a gun, the right to free speech, whatever the right is? How important is that right? And then you take it and you ask, what is the government trying to accomplish? You balance the two and you come out with a result. That's how the founding fathers imagined judges would act. That's how the ratifiers of the Reconstruction Amendments thought judges have acted and would act. Um, the idea that we would not balance the public interest in the law against the right asserted by the plaintiff is the most anti-originalist statement in American history. So I want your audience to really focus on this. Four self-avowed originalists sign on to an opinion that, has that contradicts everything we know about constitutional law at the founding. It's really insane. You know, I just don't know, how, I, like, what I don't know and what I 
don't have strong feelings about is why we let these hypocrites get away with it. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm very proud of my career um, and my books and my articles, but I'm not at Harvard and I'm not on the front page of the New York Times every day. Uh, Noah Feldman is. He's a law professor at Harvard and he's a liberal, no question, um, but he's, he's a very famous guy. And he just last July wrote this article saying not just Bruin, but Dobbs as well are not originalist cases. They are cases that talk about history, but that's not the same thing. The real issue in Dobbs was, is the original meaning of the word, according to originalists, not according to me, but, but an originalist would say, the real issue is, what is the original meaning of the word liberty or the phrase equal protection in the 14th Amendment? The Dobbs opinion says nothing about that. Nothing. It just talks about history. So, well, and it's, I mean, it picks history, you know, going far as far back as the 13th century. How is that relevant? Yes. Uh, seven, you know, it's like, and, you know, cherry picking, of course, what is, what, what they want, you know, the misogynist, Punisher of Witches, Sir Matthew Hale, you know, this is, yes. uh, you know, and, and Alito, he says, you know, that constitutional rights, and he wrote the majority opinion for Dobbs, not rooted in the nation's history yeah. and tradition, that, that, Abortion is not one of those rights, and therefore, it's not a legitimate right at all. I'm wondering, you know, on the Dobbs case, you know, doesn't that illustrate originalism's problem with groups that the framers completely ignored or subjugated? 100%. 100%. Of course. As I mentioned earlier, when the 14th Amendment was passed, whether we're talking about the Equal Protection Clause or the Privileges or Immunities Clause, doesn't matter. When it was passed, women didn't have right to vote. Women who wives were essentially the property of their husbands. So we have more in common with Russia today than we have in common with 1868 America. That's really true. We have more in common with Russia today yeah. than we have with 1868 America. So the notion that we would use 1868 America to solve our problems today is insane. And they don't do it, by the way, Mary. It's insane and they don't do it. They just pretend to do it. Right. And that's the problem. Yeah, it's a it's a pretty big smokescreen. And, you know, being part of a, 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 you know, a marginalized group at the time of the framers, I, I don't I don't really care. You know, and I, I think that yes. that in addition to that, you know, a lot of our framers, I think we sh it, it's important to look right. at if you're really going to look at them, look at them. They were uh, the one they were slavers. They were rapists potentially murderers if they were slavers. I, 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 we don't we don't survey um, people who commit those yeah. types of crimes. We don't survey them on, you know, how we think everything should be governed. And I don't think that, you know, we need to survey these people in the same same way. I'm not saying we have to throw away everything that they said, but we should take the entire person into account when we're when if we're using what they said at all as a justification for why we should do something today i think we have to look at the whole picture right what is true about originalism is true for every other theory of constitutional law as applied to the supreme court so let, let's take somebody who, who's my hero two 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 heroes of mine ruth bader ginsburg and thurgood marshall and they're very similar thurgood marshall started litigating against separate but equal long before brown he he was he was the he was the, the NAACP's lawyer in Brown versus Board of Education. His was a long, mm -hmm. well thought out strategy to convince the Supreme Court to um, overrule 
separate but equal. He did a masterful job, and the court eventually did that. Ruth Bader Ginsburg is the greatest American litigator on gender equality. And she, in the early 1970s and the 1960s, she was just a mastermind of litigation that tried to get the Supreme Court to move away from the idea that women could be subjugated and that women should be treated under equally under the law. She did an amazing job, and she's an American hero for that, and so stood her good marshal. Yet, yet... Mm-hmm. When they both get to the Supreme Court, they vote liberal slash progressive in 99.9% of cases that raise, you know, political issues. It cannot be that the Constitution, as um, expressed then or today, completely lines up with Justice Ginsburg's preferences and Justice Thomas's preferences. And it's no different, no different than Alito and um, Thomas who vote conservative 99.9% of the time. Actually, in Alito's case, it might be 100% of the time. Um, 99.9% of the time. It can't be that the Constitution just, you know, by coincidence matches up with all of their preferences. And then, even even more importantly, when we talk about the traditional swing justices, like O'Connor, Kennedy, Blackman, White, and Souter, Justices who were, White was appointed by a Democrat, ended up being very conservative. The other justices were appointed by Republicans, ended up being relatively liberal. In, in Souter and Blackman's case, very liberal. In Kennedy's case, moderately liberal on some issues. They went back and forth. You know why? Because they were political moderates. Unlike Ginsburg and Marshall, who were political progressives, or Thomas and Scalia, who are political conservatives, they're political moderates. So guess what? They vote like political moderates. Erwin Chemerinsky also wrote in that article I cited earlier, one of the things he said was that constitutional law is now and will always be the aggregation of the value preferences of the justices. That's just a true statement. And a lot of academic originalists can't swallow that. And that's the problem. I agree with you, the co brother now or the Koch brothers didn't don't care about any of that. They just don't want their businesses regulated. And there are many Fox News and other pundits who just want a Christian dominated, male dominated, white dominated society who don't care about any of that. But when it comes to law professors and the Supreme Court, most of them, they just want to impose their value preferences on everybody else. And they'll use whatever smokescreen they can to say, oh, this isn't my value judgment. This is the Constitution's value judgment or this is the founding father's value judgment. And you're right to say that all of that is nonsense. It is just their modern preference that they have the power to impose on the rest of us. I'll go with you, except for the, you know, the recent justices who were put forward through the Federal Society. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to say it's just their values. I mean, maybe, possibly, but I'm not going to. They don't. They don't get a benefit of the doubt from me because they're they they were vetted. They were vetted through. Well, what do you think it is? Well, I, I mean, I think what that do you, they. What do you think it is? It's possible. Okay, you know what? I think what I really think is is that, is that I don't actually through all of this figuring out what's going on and understanding what the Koch brothers have been up to like my entire life, I sort of don't care whether they're whether it's like malice or good faith because the people 
behind it, the co- you know, Cokes and his and his cadre of, you know, puppet masters with a lot of money, they have malice. Malice against democracy. Yeah, but, but Mary, I have to I have to interrupt though. But these people have life tenure. So whatever the Coke I mean, you're not you are not you are not alleging, and no one has alleged, and they couldn't, that the Koch brothers or anyone else, you know, fund money you know, pay these people under the table to reach the decisions they reach. They, they don't do that. I have no evidence. I have no evidence of that. It could just be, it could just be undue influence. You know, Not that anymore. Not might. anymore. See, that's why Justice Blackman changed. That's why Justice Souter changed. That's why Justice Kennedy to some degree changed. That's why Justice White to some degree changed. By undue influence? You know, no, because they have life tenure and can't be fired. So, mm. um, we're not really far apart on this, but what I'm trying to say to you is justices Thomas and Scalia went to Koch brother retreats because Mm -hmm. they liked, or justice Scalia went hunting with rich and famous people who actually had cases before the court when he died in 2016. And justice Ginsburg hung out with Nina Totenberg all the time during her career. And there's Mm -hmm. a lot of questions about that relationship. Sure. We could discuss. Um, yeah. But they can do all that because they have life tenure. And yes, the, the Kavanaugh, Barrett, and Gorsuch were all vetted through, approved by, and came up through the ranks of the Federalist Society. All three of them. And all three of all three of them um, you know, are are devout Republicans. And hell, Roberts, Barrett, and Kavanaugh all worked on Bush versus Gore for Bush. <laughs> they all right. worked on that. Right. It's an amazing thing. Now they're all in the Supreme yeah. Court. It's not a coincidence. But no, it's not a coincidence. Here's the big but. This is so we agree on all of that. Here's where we disagree. Maybe a little bit. Once they're there, and unless they commit a high crime or misdemeanor, they're there for life, or unless they voluntarily retire or die. Once they're there, they are free agents like no other politicians in the free world. There are no government officials in the history, actually, of, of democracy, in the history of the free world, where you give someone a lot of power for life. That position doesn't exist except for our Supreme Court. Anyway. Yeah. And the, that, that is too much discretion, authority, and power for any human being to use um, democracies don't do that. We don't give, we don't make presidents for life or governors for life. Um, the best example of this is the dean of my law school for about 13 years, um, a few years ago, was I think the best dean in the country. He also was my very close friend. So it's nice when your close friend is the dean of law school. And he was great. Yeah. And, he, and, and he really put Georgia State on the map. But he still had to answer to a provost and a board of a president and a board of regents. I would never have given him power for life. Even though I, tr- I would trust my children, I would trust my children's lives to this very close friend. But I wouldn't give him power for life because that's a terrible idea, and that's what's going on here. And by the way, I have job, I have a job for life too, as does you know Will Bode and Steve Sachs and Noah Feldman and Randy Barnett. We all have jobs for life, but we have no power or influence. Not really. The Supreme Court justices have enormous power, obviously, and enormous influence. So I, I don't think. They're not scared of anything. So they'll do what they want. That's good and bad. 
it's good in that if they don't, if the Koch brothers don't like what they do, tough. They have a job for life. That's the good part. The bad part is if you have a job for life, then you won't care about law if your preferences go the other way. And that's yeah. the problem with our Supreme Court. So what's your solution? So my solution is first to recognize, as I wrote in 2012, when Obama was president, and it seemed like the court might go liberal for a while, and I'm a liberal. What I wrote in 2012 was the Supreme Court is not a court and its justices are not judges. And we have to accept that reality, that because of the age of the Constitution, it's impossibility, it's difficulty in amending it, and it's vague phrases, and the court is not bound by its own prior case law, they're free agents. They can do whatever they want. And they do. They do whatever they want. They do. The only con- they, there's a constraint. It's only one. They can only do what the American people will accept. Because at the end of the day, they have no purse and no sword. That's what Alexander Hamilton said. They have no purse. They don't have any money. Mm-hmm. Congress gives them the money. And they have no military. They have no sword. The president has the military. So that's a real constraint. But it's not a legal constraint. So, so we have to make, we have to first recognize it's not a court of law. Then we have to take away a life tenure. Then we have to take away a lot of its power and suggest that that these judges sitting in Washington, D.C., most of whom have never stepped foot in Nebraska or rural Georgia or Anchorage, you know, whatever, they need to have much less power. And there are all kinds of structural ways of doing that. But we'll never get to those structural methods of stripping jurisdiction or any number of things we can do the Constitution allows until we recognize this is not a court of law. These are just nine hopefully smart people that we allow to veto the decisions of other government officials. There's nothing wrong with that in a system dedicated to separation of powers and checks and balances. But if we're going to have an ultimate veto council, which is what the court is, I certainly wouldn't put lawyers on it. I might put one lawyer on it, but I'd also have a doctor, an ethicist, a physicist, you know, uh, maybe a journalist, you know, whatever. Uh, it can't be all lawyers because these aren't lawyers' issues. When life begins is not a lawyer's mm. issue. The relationship between gun safety and gun rights, if you believe in gun rights, is not a lawyer's issue. How much corporations should be able to spend on political campaigns without corrupting those campaigns is not a lawyer's issue. <laughs> we shouldn't have lawyers deciding it. Wow. That, that's all. That's, that's all. That's all. Now, Just a complete and total remaking. I'll tell you what judges should do. They should decide whether confessions are valid or not. They should decide what evidence gets into a jury. They should decide what self-incrimination means or, or double jeopardy because they run their courtrooms. They're lawyers and judges. They're judges. They see this every day. They're the experts. But they're not experts on abortion or capital punishment even, or the relationship between gun rights and gun safety or affirmative action. They know nothing more about that than you and I do or any other person picked at random from the Kansas City phone book, as Justice Scalia once said. So we have to get, we have to recognize that that, that the Supreme Court is an anti-democratic institution that is in fact helping destroy our democracy. I, mean, I agree with that. And, and, and Mary, the first step, I know it sounds crazy to many of your listeners, but the first step is to really accept the Supreme Court is not a court. It is something else. And then we have to figure out what do we want from this ultimate political veto council. That's the first step. 
I mean, I think what you know, you what you call for in your book is is transparency, transparency in why judges are making decisions, what yeah. are their values. And, yeah. you know, I thought about that and limiting it to the Supreme Court, but really, it's not a criticism of just Supreme Court justices. It's a criticism of judges all up and down everywhere. I've spent a long time as a criminal defense attorney, public defender, and what I would want out of a judge is just a fair shake on the law. You know, apply the law even when it benefits my client. And that was not something that happened most of the time. I could have a case specifically saying evidence should be suppressed. That didn't mean I was going to win. Meant I felt great writing my brief. You know, I felt like, bam, I got this. But correct. So, so Mary, let me interrupt you with the story, if you don't mind, because it'll get it'll get right to the point. Yeah, I think your audience will really accept this reality. So a few months ago, um, I was invited to participate in a Federalist Society debate uh, in Cincinnati at the University of Cincinnati Law School with a lawyer, not a law professor, a lawyer uh, for the Federalist Society who's very smart and very good. And the topic of the debate was, is originalism our law? Now, I think it clearly is not our law, obviously. I mean, it's just not. They say it is, but it's not. Anyway, it was a fascinating debate. Now, he, who's who's a very seasoned senior litigator, is much better than I am at humor, at style. Um, And he was very, very funny and smart. And on those on those on that scale, he won that debate. But on the substantive scale, I was killing him. And that's not his fault. I, I, I write about originalism for a living. He does it kind of as a hobby, you know. And he knew he was losing the debate. So because he's smart and he's a good guy. Yeah. So at the end of this debate, the very last end, I made a point that he couldn't refute. By the way, the moderator of this debate was a Sixth Circuit judge, John Bush, who uh, Judge Bush, who we don't want to talk about. But anyway, um, at the very end of the debate, and there were lawyers and students present. He said, all right, I really can't refute the point Professor Siegel just made. So let me tell you exactly what the law is. Because Professor Siegel has shown it's not originalism. What the law is, is, quote, whatever I can say to the judge to get him or her to rule for my client within ethical bounds. Hmm. And I looked at him and I said, you know what? That's exactly right. And it's right at every level. Traffic court, superior court, trial courts, appellate courts, and the Supreme Court. If you're a lawyer, your job is to tell the judge exactly why the judge should rule for your client within ethical boundaries. And that's what the law is. All the justices in the Supreme Court came up through that system, and they know that. So whatever tools lawyers can use to convince judges to rule for their client is what the law is if the judge then uses that to rule for their clients. Justice Alito, we know, is personally against abortion 100%. But you would never know that from reading the Dobbs opinion because he never says that. He should say it. Uh, Justice Ginsburg was very much in favor of affirmative right. action. But you would never know that by reading her opinions. You would say all she's saying is the Constitution allows affirmative action. But that's not true. I mean, it is true. But, but her motivation is she's in favor of affirmative action. 
We just have to make these government officials tell us the truth. And originalism going full circle is the biggest impediment today to those judges telling the truth. And that is a real shame. Does that make sense? It makes perfect sense. And in my opinion, it's intentional, uh, that, <laughs> that lack of transparency. Uh, well, thank you so much, Professor, for your time and your insight into this topic, which can be pretty opaque for people, especially non-lawyers. So I, I really thank you. And I urge my listeners to go out and, you know, if you really want to dig deeper into that, to, to read Originalism as Faith, though, there's going to be a link in the show notes to Independent Bookstore where you can purchase that. Thank you again, Professor. Thank you so much for having me, Mary. And um, I, I really enjoy talking to you. Thank you. Yes. Ugh. Well, this episode is written and produced by me, Mary Whiteside, mixing and mastering by Joe Thompson, social media and some producing by Jen Nicholson. You can find the podcast on Twitter at CourtPod, um, as long as it's still functioning. You can also find Professor Siegel on Twitter. He is one of my favorite Twitter professors, and you can really, he, he, he's amazing. So I urge a follow. And again, his um, handle will be in the show notes. You can drop an email at mayatdisplease.thecourt at gmail.com. We would love you to rate and review the show as it helps others to find the program. Our theme music is Poor Man's Pain by Danielle Ponder. She's a former public defender. The song is about Willie Simmons, a black man sentenced to life in prison in 1992 for stealing just $9. And again, check out the show notes to learn more about this. All right. Thank you. Head to cry.